Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. Okay, so I hope you've eaten because this conversation is going to leave you incredibly hungry. Today we're diving into food. If you think about it, our sense of smell plays such an important role in our appreciation of food, whether it's enjoying those wonderful aromas that help stimulate our appetite or experiencing all those different, really rich flavors when we eat. Today, my guest and I are talking about the aromatic pleasures of two very rich food cultures, Iran and Italy. These two places might seem very different, but in fact, they have a lot in common, as you'll learn. We're going to talk about scent memories, how food expresses culture, history, and economy, as well as how it lets you connect with your homeland, while also allowing you to learn about new cultures never visited. And we'll do that by talking about the eggplant, rice, olive oil, bread, and many other aromatic delights that connect this region of the world. Let me introduce you to my guest. Sagar Satare is a food writer, photographer, and author. She was born in Tehran and moved to Rome in 2007 to study at the Fine Art Academy. Sagar has a very popular food and photography blog called Lab Noon as well as the Substack, which is its more carefree and candid sister. As a food writer, she's contributed, among others, to Food 52, Condé Nast Traveler, and National Geographic. And alongside working as a professional photographer, her photos are breathtaking, by the way, she runs Persian and Italian cooking classes in cities across Italy. In 2020, Cigar was among Corriere della Sera's selection of 50 women of food. And she has just released a wonderful new cookbook, which is the focus of this conversation, that you're going to want to get your hands on immediately. Nigella Lawson raved about it. It's called Pomegranates and Artichokes, a food journey from Iran to Italy. It's a cookbook full of rich new recipes that show how ingredients and recipes unconstrained by borders, are shared and transformed through the immigrant experience. If you're someone like me who's called more than one place home, I think you'll really be able to relate. So let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Sagar Satari. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. I want to welcome you to An Aromatic Life. Sagar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Fraka, for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I've been, one, I've been waiting for this day because I basically found out about you through as it will be social media, Instagram, but I came across your Instagram feed and what a beautiful feed it is. And what, you know, you're a photographer, right? So you obviously Instagram is your medium, I would imagine, because you can get your beautiful photos across on Instagram. But I just was so excited when I 
saw that you had a cookbook coming out and then I learned about your background and your multicultural background. And I was like, this, I have to get to know this person. So it's so exciting that your book's coming out. So that's why I want to talk to you today to talk about your cookbook, but I want to talk about all things smell <laughs> related. So I'm really excited. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited to be on, on this show. It's such a fascinating topic. And as we were saying before, that doesn't get talked about as, you know, as we, as we should be talking about it. So thank you for having me. Yeah. And I, and I think, as I mentioned to you, I haven't done a lot on food, which is kind of sad because, you know, smell is such a big part of food. So thank you for initiating that for me. And I hope it <sighs> means we can um, dive into food deeper. I did have breakfast this morning, thank God, because I'd probably be um, hungry the whole <laughs> time we're talking about this. <laughs> um, now I want to get started. The first thing I always like to ask my guests, because I, I get, like to get their perspective on this amazing sense and ask them just, what does the sense of smell mean to you? When I say sense of smell, what what comes to mind for you? Uh, I think this is probably a very cliche answer, but um, for me, the sense of smell is mostly... I mean, it hits me most powerfully um, when I smell something that is nostalgic for me and then it just throws me back to a moment in the past and I can, for a second, I can relive that. So, um, you know, because the other things, the smell of food, the smell of, you know, shampoo in the morning, yeah, um, those things perhaps we don't that often notice. Yes, uh, we know it's there, but we don't we don't, you know, it doesn't stand out that much. But especially for me personally, this is a lot about perfume. If I smell a certain perfume uh, that maybe somebody I knew used to wear or, it, or even an old perfume that I myself used to wear, it has happened to me that I get completely thrown back to that moment. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a very powerful feeling. Yeah, it's about memory for you then. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Since we're diving into memory, I did want to ask you, so you grew up in Iran. Mm -hmm. Was it in Tehran, in the capital? Some part of it, another part in another okay. city. Okay. Um, and then you moved to Italy, which is also the, the prime theme of your cookbook. But when you were growing up in Iran, one of the things that I personally, I've never been to Iran, but... I love how aromatic, how sensory, like, I feel like that culture is completely focused on their sense of smell, unlike here in the US. Like, I feel like the US isn't very much connected with their sense of smell. And I say that because of all the beautiful aromatics that you have. I mean, the connection you have to like orange blossom, rose. I mean, I just feel like, and it's in your food, right? A yes. lot of it. So I yes. feel like there's a, there's, there's, there's uh, well, definitely, definitely in the food, there's a lot of that because, I mean, there is, of course, the smell of saffron and rose water and those yeah. things. But if I think about Iran and the smell, I mean, food and smell, yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually rice because you can smell yeah. it when people are cooking rice. You're right. And, um, and, and that's that's a very, very powerful smell. And you yeah. pass by and you feel that or... Or even the, the grilled meats, um, the kebabs, but that's not specific to Iran, although, you know, our kebabs are a little bit different. 
mm-hmm. um, you pass by somewhere, you can you can tell something is happening, or sometimes specific dishes you can recognize them from the smell. Oh, they're having this, ah. or you come you you would come back from school and you know already before even entering the house you would know from smell what the you know your mom has cooked for lunch. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So it's a specific dish. They have the specific smells and. Um, they're very, very nice. And then there's, of course, you know, the whole rose water, saffron, cardamom thing, yeah. um, you know, especially for baking for norus and that sort of thing that comes to my mind. Um, or or going to this, because we, we have the shops that sell spices also sell nuts. Oh. So it's usually um, spices, um, nuts, dried fruits, and all of these sort of dried things. Mm-hmm. And they have a very specific smell because it's a mix of everything. You go in there and you you get, you know, showered by that sort of oh. smell. And another thing that I would say about Iran in the sense of smell and food, it's the smell of um, half-seen table. Half-seen table, which means that the table of seven S's. Okay. Um, it's uh it's a table we set for no ruse, which is the new year for us. It starts with the beginning of spring. So we set this table on March 20th and we celebrate the, the beginning of the new year, which is the uh with you know it um occurs on the um, spring equinox. Okay. And there are certain elements on this table um that also they you know originally they should all be edible but now some people add also coins which start with s um in persian but they are um so they would be like the sprouts of grain usually uh lentils or um wheat uh apples uh vinegar garlic sumac um this little fruit that i always forget the name in english and other languages i can't remember now it's a dried fruit anyway okay um and then there is sort of a wheat pudding that is called samanu i didn't count them but these are the most important one. and the sumac of course and when you sit this table especially after the first day it has a very specific smell which for oh. me is the smell of you know no ruse and the new year um when i do it here i usually close my um i mean i i pour the vinegar and something that i can with a tap that i can close it right. uh, partly to avoid that smell but still from the sumac and the garlic and that little pudding you can get a little bit of that smell um which is you know it's very so cute are the dried fruits barberries? No, they're not. I can, okay. I can look them up. No, no, don't look it up. Don't look it up. It's not a big deal. I just thought because th- that's very specific for me in my head that of what Iranian food is that it's um, with barberries because I don't notice that in many other. Yeah, the barberries are very Iranian. They're quintessentially Iranians. I haven't seen other cuisines who use that uses them. Probably there are or maybe differently. <laughs> but um um, but no, this thing from the Norus table is not that. I can give that. Oh, so they call them Russian olives. Russian olives. Interesting. Okay. And they have a very um, Russian olives or oleaster. Oleaster. So what do you call them? What's the name for you? We call them Senjit. Senjit. 
because I have an international audience, so maybe somebody will be like, "Yeah, they're yeah, screaming." Yeah, of course. To their I mean, <laughs> screaming. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if if there's any Iranian listening, they would know what I'm talking about when I say the little fruits of half seen table. But I, it's yeah. always a disaster. I never remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fine. That's fine. So when you were growing up in Iran, do you have any? Were you connected with smell at all? Like being a smeller, or is that something that you kind of thought about later on in life when you started getting into cooking more? Um, well, I didn't start into cooking until I was already in Italy. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, this, this, this smell of food was always very important. The things that I told you about, especially like, you know, coming back home and you say, oh, for example, we have Lubio Polo. There is a recipe for this dish in the, in the book yeah. or, um, or for example, now, now that it's summer, there there is a recipe for a drink in the book. It's called Sekan Jabin. Um, and it's uh it's a syrup with vinegar and mint, a lot of mint. And you would have it with um, for example, cuc well, there are two ways of having this. You either mix it with some water and ice and add a lot of shredded cucumbers to that. And that like that combination of that syrup, a minty syrup with a little bit of vinegar and the smoke. I love cucumber, which is very potent. Mm -hmm. um, that was the smell of summer. Um, sometimes I, I make a cocktail with it even, and I add gin to it, and it's oh, very nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I wouldn't say I, I have this memory of perfumes. I have, I should say another thing. When, when I was a teenager, I don't have that this thing anymore because... Um, this, we are getting you know very far away from food here um when i was a teenager um i was very much attracted to to boys or i would say men who would wear strong perfumes and who smoked so i loved the combination the both of them Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah that was a very interesting thing but uh, it's very funny because i i don't have that anymore one is that because i i don't smoke anymore myself and i i don't stand the smell of um smoke cigarettes on anyone else um it's it just you know repels me now but still sometimes with the combination of, of a nice strong perfume i find that exciting so you know that that's sort of a you know very uh, what do you call that um well that combination it's very yeah, it's a very yes with the human skin and um... yeah yeah no that's interesting that's cool when did you arrive in italy when, how 2007 old you? i was 22 22 okay so you can yeah. you recall the the moment that you touched down in italy like because i moved to from germany to the u.s when i was six and i can hmm. really remember the day i mean i was six i don't remember much but i do remember distinctly when we arrived this was in the early 70s <laughs> and I remember being at the airport and arriving and it just smelled of like exhaust we went outside obviously oh. not before but as soon as we get outside you know trying to figure out where's our taxi to get us to wherever we were staying first because it was the 70s and there's these big American cars with you know big exhausts and it just I just remember that smell of exhaust and that would sound terrible to many people but I don't know why it's to me now looking back at it it's comforting because I've had a really wonderful experience here in the U.S. so to me 
exhaust is kind of tied to that first moment I arrived. So I'm just curious if you might not have a memory of when you arrived in Italy, but. Well, that actually, that's that's very interesting. Um, so my first memory of, you know, of touchdown in Rome is that I got out of the uh, the plane and I was like, whoa, what is this? It was the humidity of the air which to me smelled so I was coming from this dry um, air that was you know on paper even hotter but not mm, in actuality yeah yeah Um, because the temperatures in Iran in Tehran get higher than this but it never feels like this right Um, and so I remember the stickiness and the humidity that I'm now used to, but it was unbearable to me back then. And it it was, and I, you know, I smelled it on, on the air. I smelled it on myself. But yeah. funnily enough, Tehran is also a very polluted city, a very polluted city. Oh, so wow. that smell of exhaust and smoke yeah. is actually the smell of Tehran to me. Interesting. Uh, and yeah. I remember actually one of our friends, she was telling me a few years back that, you know, another friend of ours, he was like, in, he was in the middle of the street somewhere in Rome and he was suddenly hit with this nostalgia for Tehran and, ah, oh, you know, the, the center of Tehran, what is it, what is this? And then he saw that there was a bus that had a problem and it, it was, uh, you know, emitting all this uh, excessive smoke that yeah. they shouldn't here in Europe. And he was hit with the nostalgia because <laughs> that's how we ran the city. Um, oh, that's a set memory right there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I remember this, I remember this incredible humidity that I like really hated um, when, I, when I first arrived. But I don't remember a, a specific smell, to be honest. But the airport, and I would say here specifically the airport of Rome, smells a little bit of the sea because it really is very close to the sea. Like yeah, it's at Fiumicino true. and Fiumicino is at the sea. Yeah. Um, and this is something I even now notice when I get here. Oh, it's humid and smells like the sea. But then you go inside the city, you, you, you don't have that smell of no. the sea anymore. Well, let's get into your cookbook. Wow. <laughs> what a wonderful cookbook. Pomegranates and artichokes, a food journey from Iran to Italy. Uh I think I mentioned this when when we first uh, got on the call, but I love cookbooks and um, and they're great for recipes. But what I find so great about cookbooks is the stories. And mm-hmm. you, I love the fact that you you know provide stories, you provide background. You you don't just say here are a bunch of recipes and you know figure it out. There's actually a really great set of stories woven in to explain why Italy. And Iran, you know, have such a connection, not only for you personally, but in general, in, in, in food culture and food history. So congratulations on this cookbook. It's your first one, right? Yes, thank you. First one of many, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think what's great also about it is that it's about cultural heritage, right? It's about migration, about adapting. To, to a new culture and understanding a way of food because you had to get to know the Italian food. You, it's not yes. something you were used to. So I think I mentioned this before when we were talking, when I first came across your your account and I was like, and, and you, you know, said, you know, you can pre-order my book now. It's going to be coming out soon. I was like, 
Italian, Iranian? Where, where, where's this connection? I didn't understand it at all. So one of the things in the cookbook, what I learned was that eggplant is one of those foods that connects the thread. And I'm just curious, tell us, tell the listeners about the eggplant. Why is that a great connection? <laughs> <laughs> the eggplant story is a very good story. Um, so um, the thing is that, you know, there is no specific connection between Iran and Italy per se. I mean, let's say as two modern countries right now, right. food-wise. Uh, but there is a series of different um, common threads and connections between the region, because there's also a map in the book, right, in the introduction. And um, if you look at that map, you see that we are not talking about a huge ter territory, which was also my point. So I, I dig out these similarities, uh, which are, you know, very fascinating for from a culinary point of view or um, even maybe from historical point of view. But my purpose for doing that was to show that, you know, if our food is so different, it's so similar then our people cannot be that different okay yeah. Yeah. so this was my whole point and i I'd, I'd like to you know point this out because uh while there are many many source books and many interesting things that show these sort of similarities this is still not a sort of a um of an academic research Mm -hmm. So I want to point that out that, you know, I'm not saying, oh, the food of Iran and the food of Italy are very similar. No, it's not like that. <laughs> but there are um, things that are similar between them and not just between them, also between the, the terroir around them, mm -hmm. because food does not recognize borders. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's yeah. not that, you know, the, the border of Iran ends right. uh, and then that food stops being made or that exactly. ingredient stops being. Uh, and so this this is about the same thing about this whole region. So the eggplant story is that um, it looks like the eggplant was arrived from the East. So um, China and India, sometime to ancient Persia. We don't have, uh, unfortunately, no um, cooking manuscripts are left from ancient Persia. So we don't know exactly what the dishes were, but we can guess. Okay. Um, because after uh, ancient Persia was conquered by the Arabs um, and they set out first the Umavid and then the Abbasid Empire, they um, started keeping a record of uh, some of the recipes. And, you know, the, they had some manuscripts of what was happening in the kitchens of the court. Okay. And um, that's very interesting because you can see that a lot of those recipes were actually ancient Persian recipes. You can actually tell from the word or the, you know, people who have worked on these things, they tell you that this is an Arabized word of such and such Persian word. And so here we're talking about the eighth, ninth century. So we're talking about the Middle Ages. Um, and the first things that you find about the eggplant is that, um, well, in, in general, medieval physicians on, um, you know, both in, in, in Europe and in the Middle East, and I believe further beyond, they were all very wary of raw fruit and vegetable. They said it was bad for you. They said it could make you sick. It could be poisonous. So basically, you were advised against having uh, fruit and vegetables, especially raw ones, like never at all. 
And among these, the eggplant was um, did, got a very, very bad rap because it looked like another uh, plant that was actually poisonous. And they thought that the eggplant was poisonous and um, they hated the bitter water. And, you know, I should say this here, I remember that even when I was little or even when I was still in Iran, I remembered eggplant as being bitter, although we had that whole process of, you know, salting the eggplant and letting its uh, bitter water go. But here in Italy, honestly, you don't even need to do that anymore because the eggplants are sweet. So this, these are, um, you know, genetic and evolutionary things that yeah. have happened in, in these centuries. So um, anyway, and there were all of these things that you should not eat the eggplants. And there are a couple of, uh, but when you read these historical um, books on medieval Arab cookery, um, there is, for example, this one episode that uh, one person, this is one of the oldest ones, uh, one person says that um, I know that some people like the eggplant, um, but I cannot. And even if um, uh, Maria, the mother of Jesus, washed it and then some other biblical woman caught it and Fatima, the daughter of the prophet, cooked it, I would still have no taste for it. <laughs> so it's such a hilarious account that this yeah. guy lists a series of religious women. Uh, like, like imagine there were sort of celebrities back then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then if, if all of these women handle this eggplant in one way or another, he would still uh, not eat it. And then a little time passes, I would say perhaps a century or so. Uh -huh. um, and you can see already the taste of people changes. Um, and another person, is, we're a Moorish person, so we're still in the Arab world. Um, and he says that, uh, I know that the doctor bans me from um, eating the eggplant because he says it's bad for me, but uh, I love it and I can't help myself. And even it's bitter water is like the saliva of the beloved during a kiss. Actually written. Wow. Then... So this was, you know, in the Middle East, then what happens? The Arabs at around, I believe, 10th, 11th century, they conquer the south of Europe, okay? And th they bring a lot of things with themselves. So they bring sugar, they bring rice, they bring, they bring citrus, uh, they bring lots of spices, and they bring the eggplants. And um, south of Europe, the reaction was the same. I mean, you know, by this time, the eggplant was integrated completely to the to the cuisine of the um, Arab court, okay? okay? Okay. But the Europeans would not eat it. <laughs> they had the exact same reaction that this is bad for you, this is poisonous, oh, these foreigners, they have brought these things and they would not eat it. Uh -huh. And it's very, because, and they would discard it, okay? Uh -huh. So what is discarded in a Catholic society? What happens to it? Jews gets it. Oh, so that's why there are so many eggplant dishes in the Jewish cuisine of both Italy and uh, okay. Spain, and many, um, many Italian dishes with eggplants that now we we, we love, like parmigiana, caponata, and other things. Yep. You know, frying eggplants. They're all Jewish dishes oh. that were later, um, you know, um, in integrated into the more global Italian cuisine, which is something that really doesn't exist. And, you know, it's very interesting. And the same fate happened to, to the artichokes. Artichokes would grow and, you know, the, the Jewish uh, community was, you know, 
in in this very restricted condition and they would eat whatever they had so the artichokes they grew they grew in the field they would eat them they would fry them until even mid 20th century here in the ghetto in rome they didn't have uh they couldn't have um kitchens in their homes because it was you know so they were so poorly built they were constantly in the um risk of getting um you know fire yeah. Um, same thing in, in Naples where, where they fried pizza. This wasn't for Jewish community alone, but in, in Naples also for everyone. They were so poor. These buildings were built badly, so they yeah. couldn't afford have kitchens. So they would fry them. They would have these huge fryers in the street and they would fry everything. That's why we have fried pizza in Naples and a lot of fried artichokes in Rome. Yeah. And But the thing is that now we have very similar um dishes all around this era that are made with eggplants i mean let's start from iran we have this dish that is called musahasami it's from north of iran north of iran is a small green line sandwiched between the caspian sea and the alborz mountains and its ecosystem is very similar to europe because it's the only part that we're next to water and these mountains are so high that don't let the humidity escape okay so the it's it's green and humid like europe um, so these eggplants are charred, preferably on open fire or just on a gas hob. Mm-hmm. And then you take out the pulp, you add a lot of garlic, add tomatoes and add eggs. Some people break the eggs ex- directly into them. In my recipe, you can see that we egg- we cook the eggs separately and add it to them, which I prefer, to be honest. Okay. And then uh, we have this sort of, so this is an Iranian dish from the, that, you know, this is a Gilaki dish to be precise. So from the, the region of Gilan in Iran. And then we come a little bit west. We still have this technique of charring the eggplants over open fire. And uh, we make a lot of different things with them all over Turkey, Greece, Lebanon, Palestine, which is, you know, the most famous of them perhaps is the bawa ganoush because you you do the same thing. You put it on fire or on a gas hob or in the oven. You mm-hmm. can also put it in the oven, but you won't get the smoky flavor. Right, right. Um, you get the pulp, you add garlic, you add tahini, you add lemon, you add a little bit of olive oil. Um and you know you have this very delicious very now famous dip or you have a lot more different sort of combinations with this especially in turkish cuisine for example um there is this called imam bayildi that i have in the book this is fried eggplant you would fry it actually twice um um, well actually it's shallow fried so it's not deep fried okay um and you know, you have this whole process of salting it and letting the water go and you leave a slit into it. And then you make a sauce with just a lot of onion, some garlic and, um, you know, tomato paste and things like that. You add um, some paprika and spices to it. And then you fill that slit of the semi-shallow fried eggplant you open the slit and you add this sauce to it and you cook it in a little bit of in a little bit more tomato sauce. And the flavor of this is very similar to that Iranian dish. Okay, even if it was not charred. Uh, and then you you come to Italy and you have something like parmigiana di melanzana, which is, you know, you fry the eggplant and you you make it tomato sauce. You could have a garlic in the tomato sauce. It depends on your family recipe. 
and then you just layer it it has cheese mm -hmm. but again that's the the palate of the flavor is the same thing nobody would be mm, you know shocked to their core if the, uh, if they ate any of their other dishes because they recognize it they have the same um, ingredients they have the same technique nothing is that drastically different Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. So one of the things you say in the introduction of your cookbook is food expresses culture, history, and economy, right? So can you tell yeah. me a little bit about that? What does that mean? Food, especially, you know, the recipes that we have, everything that we just talked about, this is culture. Yeah. Uh, for example, this, um, you know, what happens when a new ingredients arrive and then that new ingredients arrive and you accept it, it's, you know, dramatically connected to economy. Because yeah. once you don't have anything, once you don't have something and then it arrives and you need to handle it or, you know, also it's not like all, all the ingredients have been absent from somewhere. People for economical and cultural reason decide which ingredient to grow and which not. Yeah. For example, when rice arrives first to Italy, in the beginning, it was um, a luxurious element. Yeah. Then sometimes in the middle, when there was, um, you know, a, a couple of centuries, a few centuries later, when there was the carousty, rice becomes the food of the poor and the ill because they couldn't eat. Like they, they tried, they create these rice fields so that they could feed uh, the poor and the ill. And then some other times, again, it becomes food of the rich. So it's very interesting. Um, and, you know, for example, another thing about these ancient manuscripts of cooking is that especially those that are left from um, that are in Arabic or in Turkish is that they're all the food of the court. Ah, even uh, even the ones that, you know, that mention that, you know, that they were Persian recipes, they were still the food of the Persian Empire. So that it was the food of the court. Right. Or right. the food that we have, the manuscripts from the Roman Empire, they're still the food of the court. So we can't get a, you know, a genuine example of how the peasants ate back then. Yeah, it's true. Okay. It's true. Yeah. So food in this way, it does express also, it, it gives you an image of the, um, I would say, of the economy yeah. Uh, yeah, of, yeah. Of the empire and the court itself. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, that is really interesting. I was kind of thinking of economy as something else, but that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's all about your level of wealth, your level of, um, I don't want to say status, since you said a lot of it is just from the court. So that makes complete sense. And it's, it's all of those things. And then at the same time, it's also migration at the same time. <laughs> it's like Exactly. And even if we, go, if we talk about, um, you know, recent, uh, more recent times, for example, the invention of the term Mediterranean diet by this American physician, okay, yeah. it gave birth 
to the whole olive oil industry. So uh -huh. this is, yes. I didn't realize that. Was that, it came so, from... Exactly, because, you know, olive oil was, you know, um, the, the Mediterranean has always been dependent of the olive oil, yeah. not, not, not even on culinary purposes alone. So for a lot of time in the ancient times, it was used for uh, lighting and things like yes, that in the Roman times, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's not like they didn't um, consume olive oil, but after the boom of this Mediterranean diet, it's when it becomes an industry. Yeah. A huge okay. industry. So it's very, um, you know. That's very recent then, yeah. Yes, yes, it's in the 60s. One of the ways I like to connect with different cultures is through bread. Oh, yes. so, uh, so bread is a huge part of German culture. It just is like when I go back to Germany, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to get all my multi-grain breads. It's very much about grains and um, seeds. And so I love that, and especially breakfast. So we have bread for breakfast, um, which is not very, very popular in a typical American diet. It's more cereal, right? But so when I was going through this bread, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get to know the Iranian culture through bread, because that's how I, to me, that's how I can connect with the culture. So I attempted to make your milk bread, the, the shirma, is it shirmal? Shirmal, yeah. Yes, yes. So I, I just want to tell you that when I, because bread is a little daunting to make it, right? It's one thing to buy it. That's and very easy. Yeah, yeah, no, yours is wonderful. It's very straightforward and very easy. So I just want to say that first off. But what's so wonderful about it is the way you have to go about making it. Like the fact, you know, just as an example, and it's very aromatic to me. So the fact that you start with um, a saffron infusion, right? So you, you make that on the side, right? And then, so you smell that alone. That is just such a beautiful aroma, the smell of the infused saffron. And then you're melting the butter, which is another smell, right? And then you're, you're blending that all together and the fact that you have to knead it for a while. And it, you're really connecting with it. It's so easy to say, okay, I'm going to put this into a, um, a bread machine or something that's which is typical here in the US. You know, you can use some kind of gadget to help you make things. And then you just feel really disconnected from it. But um, this required you to just sit there and knead it and kind of take it all in. And I just love the whole process, let alone eating them. So thank you for that. And I, I, it, it allowed me to connect more with your culture. I mean, in a strange way, you know, it, it's, it was beautiful. That's so. so lovely. Thank you so much. I mean, I mean the shirmal bread, so the shirmal bread, I think it's, I am not a savvy baker and as, I mean, bread baker. I, I had, um, there was a period that I was very much into sourdough. This was way, way, way before the pandemic. So okay, uh, <laughs> before everybody got into it during the pandemic, yeah. Uh, but I never had that much luck in it, um, and eventually I kind of let it go because I would end up eating all that bread on my own. Um, <laughs> and uh, but the shirmal bread is a very, very easy bread, and I think it has like ten minutes of kneading, something like that. Mm -hmm. um and it's one of those things that i can actually bake and uh, my, my grandmother baked it but um yes they're there and she would make two breads one was this one the other one is another thing that i can't find the recipe for that unfortunately but oh. that one was more complicated because it had it was in layers and it had butters in all the layers okay um 
but I've recently found out that uh, like many other recipes, shirmal, it actually exists also in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India as well. Huh? I'm not sure that they're the same recipe exactly because, you know, even the same fam- the families sure. in the same city, they don't have the same recipe. But I've seen the bread um, because shirmal in, in Farsi, which has influenced in Persian, uh, all those eras, it means to rub it with bread. So rubbed with, I'm sorry, rubbed with milk. So that's a very, very easy bread, especially if you like, you can prepare it on a Sunday morning if you want to and yeah. you know have it for a light, late breakfast. Yeah. And it's very, very lovely when it's hot. And it also has the smell of the yeast, which I should say is Yes, lovely. I forgot to mention the yeast. That's true. When you make the, yeah, the yeast part, it's like just the bubbling because you have to let it sit. Yeah, sure. It's bubbling. Yeah. So you're right. The yeast it's, itself too. So it's a, it's just a really lovely aromatic um, dish or not even a dish, but you know, part of a dish is, something to make so thank you for that and that gave me a connection to iran because saffron is so i mean i'm not used to saffron in in bread or even milk to be to be honest i don't think in german bread there's milk is in there or butter so yeah that was really nice it's really nice thank you thank you for that (laughs) and then i also made which tell me if i'm wrong but in italy i don't think it's a very big breakfast culture right Italy? No. Uh, well, Italians they have <laughs> they have cappuccino e cornetto, so that would be like yeah, a, that would be their breakfast. And, um, <laughs> yes, their croissant. But, and at home, something that is still shocking to me, but I've learned to make my peace with it. My kids have cookies, cookies and milk, and like that's their breakfast, right? Yes, they oh, have wow. a couple of cookies. Well, you know, having cereal um, here in the U.S. is almost like having cookies because it's mostly sugar cereal. Yes. Yeah, that's that's also. But yeah. sometimes they they make you this chambellone or la chambella. That's the other one uh, I made. It's wonderful. Yeah. So sorry. Go it's ahead. a very <laughs> good cake because it's that's the whole point of chambella because in the old times before this all this cornetto culture, the elders they would dunk their um, old milk in their cafe latte which is just milk and coffee um so i think it, it comes from that uh, that you would you would always dunk something in your morning coffee okay uh, or if you were a worker this would have been morning wine you would still i mean people here near rome we still have these cookies that they call chambellines so it, they means they little donuts mm-hmm. um and you're supposed to, they call them Chambellina and Vino because there is wine in the recipe and then you eat them with wine. You dunk oh. them in wine and eat them. Okay. okay. So I think it's all real. It, these, this, these are, you know, old, old, old things. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we found something similar in some ancient Roman recipe about this. Um, I'm not sure, but I, it looks like that sort of thing because it's a very simple dough. Like it's water, sugar, wine flour something like that right I should tell you I'm not a big chef cook this and that so the fact that I'm able to make all these recipes you know I just dove in there yeah so anyone listening who feels like they're not you know an extensive cook or anything these recipes um, are just incredibly easy they're very straightforward you explain how to do everything very straightforward which is wonderful because a lot of these techniques are new to me right like just the saffron infusion that and um, I'm gonna use the rest that I have left over maybe 
like as you suggest, just even drizzle it on eggs in the morning, you know, things like that. That's just a very good idea. It. Yeah, that's a very good idea. Good, good. Yeah, so I have a little bit left because you make a, a portion and you can keep it for a couple of days. So that's that's perfect. So really easy, these recipes and very straightforward and, and delicious. So that makes me very happy. So I I am very glad to hear that there are some easy recipes in the books. I, I mean, I tried my best to balance the book out yeah. between achievable recipes and some of the recipes that can be a project because I know some of yeah. them are like that. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to to have them in the book anyway because I also don't. I, I mean, I'm not a fan of promising you a book of easy recipes. No, these are recipes that are um, parts of different cultures and we're talking about them for different reasons. Some of them are easy. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are not. For example, there is the Sartu Napoletano, which is this rice cake from Naples. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most difficult recipe in the book uh, or perhaps the one that takes most time because you need to prepare many different things for the filling. It, it takes like, it, it's a Sunday project and then you you end up with this gorgeous magnificent rice cake with this filling of little meatballs peas and mozzarella and you have the sauce on the other side of it so it's it's something very rewarding and you will yeah. see the crowd with it um but it does take some time and some yeah. patience to prepare everything for it but I'm so glad to hear that you know yeah yeah no I mean obviously I think it was just for me it was a, a great way to enter it right and I I fully plan to try some of the more challenging things because it's nice to challenge <laughs> yourself a little bit so I will be I'll, I'll let you know how it goes <laughs> great so like me you grew up straddled between two cultures right so the the place where you began your life's journey and the place that you now call home are two different places and there's something really wonderful that you talk about in your cookbook um, that you talk about the lantern and the mirror. And mm. I love, I could relate to that so much. Can you tell the listeners about the lantern and the mirror? Well, this is in the introduction when I'm talking about how I entered to yeah. um, work with food and to play with food. And um, so I didn't, I wasn't particularly interested in any way in food until uh I had been living in Italy already for a couple of years, mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe three, four years. I don't remember now. Um, and, you know, when I became interested in it, um, it was through Italian food. And I was, it was my lantern in a way that, especially back then, this was perhaps even out of my own ignorance about my own culture because you know I had been living in this big city all my life and I never even did my own shopping I was living with my parents so they did the whole shopping I I was a little clueless mm. I, I had never stopped and think where where is this thing come from coming from yeah whereas in Italy it's more accessible. It's more, you know, in front of your eyes. For example, a lot of people, especially I was living with roommates, most mm -hmm. of whom were from the South. Mm -hmm. And um, for example, they would get their olive oils from somebody who had an olive grove or from a friend whose friends, and, and you know, this is something very normal in Italy to, mm -hmm. to get your olive oils directly from someone you know, or from a friend that you know they know someone yeah yeah and 
to me, it was fascinating. And then the same thing, you can go, you know, with cheese and this is doing that. And uh, so these things with food in Italy were accessible or, um, um, yeah, I remember like one roommate would say, oh, I have brought this cheese with me and my uncle has made it. Like they have, um, I don't know, the animals and the things, they have a sort of a factory and these things. It's, I don't know how to express that, but these things in Italy are very accessible, even if you live in a big city. Even if you don't access that yourself, at least you have heard about it. You know this happens. Yes. Back yeah. then for me, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and this became my way of getting to know Italy. So it became a sort of a lantern for me that lit the way yeah. to understand a lot of things. And this curiosity towards Italian food and how things are made and how where the recipes come from naturally made me think about the cuisine of Iran and how things are made in Iran. So in uh -huh. that way, it also became a mirror. Yeah. To look at myself and see, okay, so what's going on there? Uh, because I realized that I have, we, we don't, you know, in, in, I, I think in developing countries or perhaps just for the way we we're culturally made, at least back then we didn't appreciate certain things. Now I have a feeling things are changing even among young people. Like people yeah. are more curious to go and see how things are made. This is also, you know, about a shift of, cult of culture in general in the world. Um, but back then I, I didn't know it at least. I'm not saying uh, nobody knew, but I definitely didn't know. Um, so in that way, you know, food became my lantern and my mirror I just I just wanted to tell you I, I when I read that I was like oh yeah it's so true and I mean I wasn't connected with my German history with food and granted it might not be it was quite different I have to say when we first arrived in the U.S. and if I think about what we ate at home versus what I ate at friends' houses and things it was different hmm, interesting yeah even though German food I'm sure was integrated into the American culture fairly quickly, you know, with the mm. hot worst or the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I need to explore my, because, you know, even within Germany, there's a lot of different um, regional differences because I'm from the Definitely. North, which is more fish oriented. So which part? Uh, Hamburg. Oh, Hamburg is more fish oriented. Interesting. Yes. Yes. From the North Sea and, and we mm. ate herring and sardines which you know in italy you find yeah so it was it's it's just more fish focused and um that did certainly i didn't find okay i, I moved to the midwest of the u.s so <laughs> there wasn't much you know lake michigan wasn't going to have a lot of fish for you so uh you know we had to adapt but anyway so i i really appreciate this lantern and in mirror it made me think a little bit more about my my cultural differences and similarities too so thank you for that that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I do want to ask you with Iran. So there's a, certainly a lot of unrest or there's a lot happening in, in the country mm -hmm. now, right? And you're far away from it. I imagine you don't have you been back recently at all or you're not going back? Uh I I the last time I was back in Iran was January 2019. Okay, before the pandemic, yeah. Yes. Do you find yourself while you're in Italy, do you find yourself connecting 
with Iran through the food a lot more? Are you are you finding that you're drawn at all to to cooking nostalgically? I'm thinking of this memory and and just connecting with your homeland. Does that ever come up? Do you do you find yourself cooking foods from home more or not? Not now. Not, not now. now. It used to this is one of the I actually mentioned this in the same introduction that you know uh, hang on to that sort of memory um, mm. through food. I would say not. I mean, um, now I have a very strange uh, relationship with food, which is not the healthiest uh, because I mean, Iranian or otherwise, because I've been working with it. It's um, I don't know. I, I feel like I have lost some part of my uh, some some part of the. Um, I don't know. It's a little bit too much thought about, and I don't want to have that. Ah. Um, but uh, especially when I'm alone, I, when I'm alone, I never cook Iranian. I never had. But okay. Uh, okay. when um, when we're with friends, we definitely Iranian friends. We definitely do um, a lot of Iranian dishes that are. Um, you know, you wouldn't do for one person, but you use okay. the occasion. And sometimes we even plan it out. Or say, so this week we we should do this, and then Aww. next week we will do that. Yes. Okay, that's good, because I I just find that it's it's a it's kind of a a unique way of connecting, not only for people on the outside. Like I was learning how to connect with Iranian mm -hmm. through your cookbook, but also for people who aren't in their homeland, it's a way for to connect with your homeland a little bit through food, right? Of course. Of course. Can't I mean, be there. It's, it's a wonderful this thing. This is this is this is why all you know people keep cooking the food of their home. But for me personally, I mean, because I run um cooking classes, Iranian cooking classes, and then I was writing about it and this book in general, I work with it. Um it doesn't come up for myself alone, but with friends, it definitely does. And I am the type of person who, at least in this moment, um, when I want to do, I mean, when I want to have a big meal with friends, I wouldn't even insist on cooking all Iranian, but that's me because I, I like the mixing and matching a lot, especially like, for example, in a season like this. But sometimes we decide to do a specific dish or sometimes because, you know, there are also events and things like that. Uh, when I do them, then it's usually Iranian food. And, you know, yes, uh, some, sometimes you do feel like, oh, my God, I really, really need to have this. And then we plan it out with friends and we cook it together. I, I don't cook it on my own. <laughs> <laughs> do you think there's a there's a particular flavor profile for Iran or not so much? It's probably yes. so there is. Yes. What is it? I would say Iranian food is sour. Oh. I mean, um, but, you know, again, Iranian food is something that we should say, quote unquote, because Iranian food yes. from where? You're right. Um, right. Because there, too, there are lots of regional differences. <laughs> uh, but yep. in general, lots of regional differences. I mean, very important regional differences. But in general, I would say we appreciate a good balance of sourness, especially in our savory dishes, okay. which I love. I mean, this is this is the thing that I absolutely adore about Iranian food, that that specific sourness. Um, so Iranian food is sour. It's savory. It's very herby. Yes. Very the amount of herbs you use in your food is 
Incredible. Um, it's nice. There's also a lot of saffron. Saffron is important. And sometimes our savory um, dishes are also agrodolce. So they're sweets. Because yeah. we use mm, fruit in them, which again, I love. Not all people love that sort of thing. But I love it. I love the use of sweets and and um, fruit in savory dishes with meat and things like that. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, I would say there's a sort of a freshness and it's sort of a also spice-wise simplicity, hmm. especially comparing to... Um, like Indian cuisine. The, to Indian or the other part of the Middle East. You don't get that you know punch of spices with their onion dishes no that's mm. true that's true you have a you have a little bit of turmeric some saffron but usually that's it but you um, need aromatic waters which i love yes to me that's or, or that is that also the whole levant would you say like the the well that changes because for example in iran we use a lot of um rose water not that, yeah. that much orange blossom water a little bit whereas the levant uses both of them actually together yeah yeah and then it go, you come to italy and it becomes just the orange blossom yeah <laughs> fascinating isn't it and yeah. and you know vanilla and those things the more you go towards west okay yeah yeah that makes sense all right so when my listeners buy your cookbook which i'll put a link in the show notes oh thank you so much go, yes and get everybody to check it out so is there anything in particular you recommend people to try first? What's a good what's a good way to to jump into your cookbook? What do you think? Okay, so if summer is still not over and if you, you, you still feel like an ice cream, mm. I really suggest because this is this is a no recipe. Like it's not a recipe. This is a sort of an invention. Um that you make two different ice creams from the book mm. which you know you don't make the ice cream you play with the ice cream <laughs> one of them is an imitation of traditional iranian ice cream on page 104 okay which you buy a top of ice cream white ice cream it could be vanilla. It's, you know, it could be fior di latte. Uh, I, just good, very good white ice cream. Okay. And then you prepare the saffron infusion. You have some rose water, um, some pistachios, and some cardamom. And you do the things that the recipe tells you. And you end up with this luxurious, luscious, incredible ice cream. Um, I'm going to try this this is very very easy and then there's another one for which you need a very good ice cream and very very good olive oil it doesn't have to be italian olive oil but it has to be a very very good olive oil you can even wait for october november to have no um, new oil for this mm -hmm. it's in the italy chapter it's on page yes page 258 Plain gelato drizzled with olive oil and flaky salt. So you have good ice cream. You need good olive oil. You drizzle just a spoon of a very good olive oil. So this is all about quality because yes. if you have a rancid bad olive oil, please don't do this. But if you have a very good olive oil, especially if it's new oil, you drizzle a little bit on this white ice cream and then you, you, you know, sprinkle a little bit of salt. It's better if you have fleur de sel or something like that. Yeah. And I think this is this is very good. They're both very good. And then if you want to do 
something savory that is easy. If you're still in the artichoke season, do the artichoke and potato salad for the artichoke part. And then do the little meatballs with um, sour cherries. You can even use dry or frozen sour cherries mm -hmm. um, from page 161. They're called kebab al karaz. They're um, originally Syrian. They also have pomegranate molasses in them. That's a gorgeous, gorgeous dish. Oh, Easy okay. also. And the photo. I mean, if you see the photo in the <laughs> cookbook, it's beautiful. Yes, and it's so good. And again, speaking of, oh, speaking of the smell, I also want to mention another recipe in the in-between chapter. Then I'll also say something from the Iran chapter because we should mention that. Yeah. Um, there are we talk about using stale bread a lot in this book okay um because all of these cultures they have something about um um doing different things with stale bread to save it and one of these recipes is fata and you basically like it's very easy you you toast pita bread um you prepare this sauce of greek yogurt garlic, tahini, lemon, a little pinch of um, cumin if you want to. And then um, you layer this, you know, lay, you layer toasted pita bread, this sauce, chickpeas from mm -hmm. a can. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, you add these pine nuts that you have um, cooked in butter. Oh. The smell of pine nuts in butter is mind blowing. Oh, I'm going to try that right away. Yeah. And it's very, very easy. It's perfect for hot summer days. Okay. Um, And it smells amazing. And you sprinkle a little bit of mint in this. And then I would also say, let's say something easy from the Iran chapter. Oh, let's, let's stay in the, in the theme of um, the bread Levant. salads. <laughs> On page 54, we have balls of herbs and flatbread. So this is a very you know similar idea. You have flatbreads that's been left over, or it can even be the dough of the bread. Okay. But you want you want it to be semi-pulverized, coarsely. Okay? okay. And then you add a lot of aromatic herbs, whatever is left. It's good to have some dill in it, but you, you know, whatever you have, but it's gonna be a lot because it needs to become green. Uh, a little bit of shallots or spring onions, um, some leftover cheese, usually something like feta or whatever you have at the back of your fridge, you, you crumble it in, um, some turmeric, um, a little bit of ghee or melted butter, and then a splash of water. And then you bring them together to make little balls and you pop it back in the fridge for half an hour or two hours, something like that. And you have these very fresh snacks or it could be, you know, summer lunch. Oh, so you just eat them out of the fridge? Yes. Wow. That's great. Yes, yeah. easy recipes. Thank you. So, <laughs> so I, I, I'm hungry already. I can tell you that. <laughs> Sagar, it was so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I could go on and on. I'm sure there's a hundred other things we could talk about just related to this book. Um, do you mind before we finish, I do like to ask my guests three questions. Sure. 
Yeah. So let me ask you these three questions. So the first one I always like to ask is, do you have a favorite smell right now? Anything in the world? It could just be what you like right now. Not for always and always, but just what's your favorite smell right now? My favorite smell, because it's very hot, is cucumber and mint. Mm, that's a lovely. Because it's, it's, it's very fresh. Also, the smell of Italian summer, I would say, is basil and tomatoes. Yes. But personally, I love cucumbers and mint better than <laughs> tomato and basil. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they're all nice to be honest, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. And do you have any favorite scent memories that you can recall that you could share? No, simply the smell of certain dishes because you would come back home from school and you would remember, uh, you would know what, what is being cooked. That's a, that's a very nice smell. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. You were mentioning mm -hmm. that earlier that just the fact that you even had fresh cooked food when you got back from school that's that's so yeah, always 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 I mean you don't get that nowadays very much yeah I mean <laughs> that's good yeah, I wish <laughs> I know exactly the last one what would you say are five smells that best describe you oh five smells that best describe me this is a very difficult one but it's very um <laughs> You can use more than five. Some people have used 10. <laughs> no, just whatever some of your favorite smells. I want to say melting butter. Yeah. That's very nice. Toasting almonds. Mm. The smell of the woods, like the damp trees. Yes. Um... But you know what else? I really love the smell of tonka beans. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, having just talked to you now, one of the smells that reminds me of you, <laughs> the <laughs> time that we've known you, by just here, is cardamom. Because for me, yes, it's very warm. And it, you seem very warm. <laughs> so just for me, cardamom, it's not, maybe it's not something that you, you know, associate with yourself, but just as somebody looking outside in, I, to me, you're, you're cardamom. Ah, uh, that's so nice. I love the smell of when I brew tea, normal break tea uh, with cardamom, which is how my mother used to do it. I mean, she still does it and I, I still do that. And that's like that smell and, you know, the taste of that tea with cardamom, which is, you know, it drives all your exhaustion away. So there is, um, I don't know if it's the actual name in English, but it's this tuberose. Is the tuberose, a... yes, yes. The tuberose. So I yes. I love that smell, but I would also say freshly brewed coffee. Oh, I hear you. There's nothing like that. And coffee is another one of those smells and one of those drinks that's pretty global you know yes it's 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 exactly a lot it's one of those that's traveled a lot and yeah I mean an Italian coffee versus yes or just you know the smell of coffee in the oh. morning that's very nice yeah no I hear you I want to thank you for joining me um, thank you for having can... me yeah no I'm so happy you were here and I I can't wait for everybody to go out and buy this book i'd like you to go out and buy this book pomegranates and artichokes a food journey from iran to italy and people can also check you out on you have a Substack. 
correct? I do have a Substack, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at labnoon, that is L-A-B-N-O-O-N. And then you can find me at Substack, which is again, labnoon.substack.com. And where awesome. I try to write not just about food, but it somehow always comes back to food. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what's also great is if you're in Italy, if you ever find yourself in Rome, you also do yeah. in-person classes, right? Tell us about that. So I um, sometimes organize um, Iranian cooking classes, but I also do uh, little, really tiny food tours in Rome that is like the maximum amount of four or five people uh, and they're private. So I, it's, it's not a group tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we, we see a little bit of the city and we have some food and I give you some historical and social context. Um, and then sometimes I also plan um, sort of market to table cooking classes that are associated with the food tours, if you want to, some simple Roman slash Italian cooking. Um, so I'm available for for those things, for the cooking classes, Iranian and um, Italian and Roman. Mm-hmm. And um, yes. No, it's, I mean, um, that would one day i hope to come (laughs) of course you should you definitely should i'd love to have you oh thanks well thank you again sagarin uh i wish you much success with the book thank you so much you're very kind thank you for having me thank you for joining me on an aromatic life if you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, smellgym.com, where you can take online classes to exercise your sense of smell for health and well-being. And while you're there, be sure to grab the free guide to help you elevate your smell health with everyday items in your home. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.